This is SciBite, episode 134, for June 24th, 2014. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at a theory-breaking exoplanet, a theory-confirming star, Saturn's moon Titan, lunar formation theories, story and spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Holy moly, Heather. Well, I have a suggestion. I'm just going to put it out there. Why don't we kick it off with the news? All right, Heather, what is our first news story tonight? As is often happening recently, astronomers have once again announced that they've discovered a new type of planet that breaks formation theories. This one is a rocky world weighing 17 times as much of the Earth. Whoa, that's a big planet. Yes, past theories have stated that such a large world, rocky world, could not be formed because anything that big would be would grab a whole bunch of hydrogen gas and would grow to be a Jupiter-like gas giant planet. Hmm. This one, however, is not. It is just a big, rocky super-Earth. Okay. Well, or they're calling now a mega-Earth. I like that. I like Mega Earth. That's mega good. Mega Earth. Mega. Yes. So this particular one is located about 560 light years away. Uh, its orbit is only about 45 days. Now, they actually it actually also has uh, three other Earth mass planets, uh, what they're calling lava worlds, that are orbiting really close to their star with an orbit of about 20 hours. Okay. So pretty much balls of lava swirling around the star. Ooh. Now this was another one that is data from the Kepler Space Telescope. Right. Even though it has moved on to a sort of secondary motion of its of its phase, we're still getting a lot of data out of the primary mission. And they're able to, you know, this is the mission where they calculate the tiny dimming of a star mm-hmm. to say, hey, there's a planet past something planet passing in front of that star. Notice a couple times, hey, there's probably a planet there. Now, it can't tell anything about it or much about it. They can't tell whether it's a, you know, a rocky planet or a gas planet. But they can kind of get an idea of the diameter. And so they were kind of saying, all right, this is the roughly the diameter we think it is. So it's probably like a mini Neptune. Okay. So then you go to Earthbound telescopes. Then they go back and they kind of pick out some that look interesting. And then they'll go and they'll try to analyze it more closely, then you can take and uh, they can look at the wobble of a star. You know, because if a planet orbits it, it'll make the star move just barely, and they can actually measure that from Earth. And this time, they actually showed that it weighed 17 times the amount as Earth. That's nuts. And it was definitely far more than expected. So it was with the diameter that they had seen, it had to have been very dense. It had to have been rocks and other, you know, solid material. Mm. And, you know, if it ever had an atmosphere, 
it would, it's so massive, it would still have it. So if it ever had one, it would still have it, and it's not a gas giant, so they're trying to figure out what exactly would cause this. As is usual, every once in a while now, we see a planet, we're like, this is how the planets form, and then we find an exoplanet, we're like, except for that one. <laughs> okay, now we think this is how they form, and a couple of months later, except for that one. This is once again where it's, can't really explain such a large rocky world mm. and not only that but the system itself is so old it happened less than three billion years after the big bang now that is actually when the system was really when the universe was really really young mm. now in the at the very beginning of the universe all you had was hydrogen and helium all the heavier elements that we are made of and that we see um, that make up us and, you know, all everything else is from when a star goes supernova, it causes uh, heavier elements to occur. Sure. Now, scientists really didn't think there would have been enough of those heavier elements to make those rocky world at that time in the universe's history. That should have taken billions of years. But we're obviously seeing something that could say that such huge rocks could have actually formed at that point. Right. When heavy elements would have been really scarce, actually. So rocky planets could have formed much earlier than we thought. So there, what which, you're saying is there could be some civilizations out there that have a huge head start on us. What I'm saying is that they can't. <laughs> Science looks peculiar at you, skeptically. I'm just saying that's the inevitable result of what you're saying here, Heather. Well, it does mean that we can't rule out older stars. I mean, you know, up until recently, it sounds like, oh, yeah, okay, right, so right. we can't look at stars older than this, so we don't have to worry about any of them. We can ignore right, them. Right. Look at the this age of stars. Right. Now we have to stop and go, well, actually turn head and look at those stars. Now we do need to look at that data. Uh, so there could be a whole bunch out there we were never even looking at. Interesting. Yes, so, but, uh, yeah, chat room, there's no way to explain everything, everything, no. But scientists want to... Keep trying. I mean, they want to keep trying. We yeah. really want to keep trying. Yeah, yeah. You see something, you're like, how did that happen? Let's find out. And then you try to explain it, and then... Exoplanet formation theories change because we find new things that say, nope, we only thought we had it right. Right. Well, and that's kind of one of the fun things about following it, in a sense. It really yes. is. Like, that's kind of the more actually kind of exciting aspect of it. Um, and then seeing how it all kind of comes together in the end. Very cool. All right, Heather, well, why don't we, uh, oh, I don't know, take a quick moment, just... Maybe a pause, if you will. And I want to uh, mention patreon.com slash today. We're doing a funding drive over on this. This is tied in with the new Tech Talk Today show that we have. And this is an effort to fund the network from the crowd so that way we can avoid additional advertisers. And we're trying to reach new plateaus. We have a milestone we're trying to get to. It's our next milestone where we'll then have a budget line where we can hire some contractors and uh, get some work done that we need done. Uh, it, it's not just like computer stuff. It's also uh, some facilities things and stuff that we know that we can afford once we have a certain level of funding. And you can help support the Jupiter Broadcasting Network by going to patreon.com 
slash today. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash today. That's our page. You'll find out information about what we're trying to do, the different pledge levels that we suggest, and all of those goodies. This is a, this is a way we're trying to raise income without increasing our advertiser load. And and as perhaps this, if this, we'll, we'll find the right balance as we kind of see what the response is to this. We may change the advertising up or down, kind of depending on the response we see here. It's all kind of in flux, but the idea is to create a new stable way to, get, to keep some money coming to the studio so we can make investments throughout the rest of the year to really, to really get, uh, I, I want to say to a new plateau. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but that's really what we're trying to get to is the next level. And you guys can help us do it by going to patreon.com slash today. Help us out. All right, Heather, why don't we do, oh, I don't know, perhaps another suggestion, the news bite. Okay, Heather, where are we going to uh, start in the news bite? So we broke theories before, sure. but now we are confirming theories. Okay. There are actually a, a star that was theorized that was sort of two stars in one. The theory was that a binary star system where a super dense neutron star could be absorbed by a less dense red supergiant star. All right. Now, this theory was way back in 19... Well, was back in 1975. Now, it was was very hard to see in real life just because it looks like a red supergiant. In order to really prove it, you have to have detailed uh, spectrographic analysis for the particular chemical signature of a star. Now... Because normal red supergiants derive their energy from nuclear fusion. Now, these specific ob- these uh, thorn thorn zeitkow zeitkow objects TOs are powered by the unusual activity from the neutron star in their core. Oh. So the spectrographic analysis would be very different. So astronomers were examining the spectrum of light emitted from what looked like red supergiants. We can tell them what what elements are present in the star. Now, when examining the spectrum of one specific star, they were analyzing, the scientists actually saw some very strange readings. They will take a look at some of the lines in the spectrum and find that it had things like rubidium, lithium, molybdenum. Mm. Mm. Now, these type of things are elements that are not in red supergiants, but they are in would be more like uh, from neutron stars. Uh-huh. So it would be a unique signature of these type of theorized stars. Okay. So it's, it's one of those things where it's it, everything looks the same, but you have to kind of look at each red supergiant and take the, um, take the analysis of every one to see if something happens to look like it. Hmm, okay. So the idea is that you have two massive stars, a red supergiant and a neutron star, which is uh, a star formed after a supernova. So you have this dense star that can happen after a supernova can leave this behind. So you have these two in a close binary system. And then the the more massive red supergiant would essentially swallow up the neutron star, Ah. which would spiral down to the core of it. And then that would become the energy source of the red giant. Now, then that would change all the chemical characteristics of the star. 
because there is a lot of different and strange chemistry going on there then. And there's then be... So there are, from what we see, there are definitely inconsistencies into what some of the details of what the theory would predicted. But the theories are from 1975 as well. There have been a lot of improvements in the theory since then. Mm -hmm. They're still tweaking the theory now that they've actually found one. But looking at this can kind of tell us more about this star, uh, more about how stars kind of work internally still, like looking back at different stars. So you say, all right, well, this is kind of how this one is reacting inside of itself. You know, the internal... Sort of how the plumbing, I mean, it's almost like... Yeah, exactly. You get insights into the internals of a star in a very fascinating way. Yes, for a very in a strange situation. And from that, you can kind of infer and say, well, in this strange case, this is what's going on. Um, perhaps in a more normalized situation then this more straightforward approach would be okay. Hmm. This is uh this is a little star ma magic right there really. So it's like oh, a yeah. it's like a it's so it swallows up a whole other star and then sucks its power. Yes. But it starts <laughs> it starts running on the battery power yeah. of its old partner. Yeah. That's Somebody a really... in the chat room called it a vampire. Yeah, star. that's what I was going to say. It's, it's a vampire star or like a yeah, yeah, some, an energy vampire, I suppose. Yes. Uh, all right, any other thoughts on that one? No, just kind of interesting how uh, sometimes we can actually prove theories instead of breaking hey, them. Hey, yeah, a little from column A, a little from column B. All right, Heather, we'll get ready. The band's here, and that means it's time for the two-byte news. Right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news? Alrighty, the cameras on NASA's spacecraft orbiting uh, the Cassini spacecraft orbiting Saturn's moon Titan that have been watching uh, some of the large methane lakes are starting to look for waves. Waves on Saturn? Yes, the, there's the methane lakes. And so they're very carefully analyzing some really high detail scans to see can they spot waves. <laughs> now what they're do what they can do is they find uh, they found patterns in the sunlight reflecting off of one of the northern lakes that could be interpreted as just like two centimeter high waves. Now it could just be a mud flat. Okay. Um, or instead of like a deep lake that could have you know, a shallow film of liquid on top. Okay. But if it could be waves, the whole point is, no, not surfing chat room, it would confirm that the lake would be deep enough, deep enough oh, right. to have reservoirs of methane and ethane. Of, of course. And if life, you know, little screwing life existed on Titan, the best place to look would be in large bodies of liquid, the kind that would form waves. I guess uh, I, what I'm hung up on here is that we live in a world where we can observe waves on Saturn. On Saturn's moons? 
Yeah, we're trying to uh, well, watch. I, yeah, them. the distance of Saturn. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean we're trying to at least. We 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 think we see something, which is absolutely incredible <laughs> if you think about it. That's really yeah. quite amazing. And so if there's waves, ergo water's deep enough. Ergo, it's possible something might be swimming in there. Ergo, it would be a good place to send a robotic spacecraft mission. Right. I like the way you think, Heather. Well, uh, while we're doing some thinking, something that has always stumped me is just how did that moon form? Do we have a new theory? No, we're looking at old theories and kind of confirming them. Okay. So according to one formation theory, you know, billions of years ago, we have Mars-sized body of, you know, planet they call Theia, smashes into Earth. Earth survives, fragments of the crash, and parts of Earth all coalesce into the moon. Problem has always, one of the problems has been, no evidence of that said planet Theia. Now they believe they may have actually found traces of it in lunar rocks taken from Apollo missions. So before, um, you have oxygen isotopes. Before the resolution of microscopes, we couldn't see any significant difference in these isotopes or types of oxygen between any of the lunar samples brought back from the moon and Earth. Now, these type of oxygen isotopes are very uh, distinctive, almost fingerprints for, for planets, for, bo- for various bodies of uh, rocks. So we can identify pretty closely and say, hey, this is from here, this is from there. Mm. Now this new research has actually been able to go back through those old uh, rock samples from Apollo and say, we actually think we have, um, some of these moon rocks have parts per million of this different type of oxygen isotope. They're very small and slightly more difficult to detect. However, they are there. So now they're it kind of says, well, we actually do see this. It's much more likely that this type of event happened. Um, I, I, what I, well, I guess where I'm hung up on is, so is the theory then that the object that smashed into the Earth was absolutely and totally demolished and just absorbed into our rock and the moon's rock and it didn't break? Like, There's no piece of it that survived and it's out there floating? Uh, the theory would be no. Okay, so the whole... Okay. The theory would be, you know, it smashes into the Earth. Um, some of that would be that the dense material from the core of that then kind of spreads across the surface of the Earth. It gives us a whole bunch of the yeah. great... Um, Pieces of evidence, the, if you will. Well, minerals and heavy elements that we, that we can use and are very useful mm-hmm. on the surface of the Earth. Right, right, very much so. <laughs> Amazingly enough. Yeah. And then part of the earth and part of the lighter material from that kind of all float off and um, would have uh, formed the moon. And uh, somebody in chat room asks about uh, Mars's moons. But in that case, uh, that's the other type of moon formation would be they aren't form- formed, they're captured. So in that case, it would be asteroids captured, which was one of the theories, could Earth have captured something the size of the moon? But no, not the right. in the size distribution. But in this case, it was the theory, you know, how to calculate that and seeing that, wow, the moon is moving out centimeters by centimeters every so many years. And so going backwards, hey, it says 
moon would have started at Earth. So then they started this theory and, hey, let's look at the, the science and the math. And we're actually starting to go further and further along and saying there's more evidence that just the right, you know, statement of events happened. Right. Uh, oh, oh, thank you. Uh, Heather, this just in from the news floor. Uh, we got an update, don't we? We do. On SciBi 130, uh, back in May, we talked about an asteroid-turning comet. This is uh, astronomers with the Catalina Sky Survey picked up a very faint asteroid in an orbit that's more like a comet than an asteroid. Now, these are specific asteroids known as democloids, thought to be various inactive uh, varieties of comet nuclei. So these are sort of thought that these are you know, comets that have fizzled, they're, they're gone. Now, in May, they saw this asteroid, had, they happened to spy it, and it gave a little bit of fu- had a little bit of a fuzz to it. They went, okay, looks like it's starting to activate, like maybe there's something going on. And soon enough, it started having a, a coma or atmosphere. It's starting to brighten um, and but get slightly more comet-like looking. So it'll actually reach uh, perihelion just four days before its closest approach to Earth. So in early July, it's actually going to be uh, some good binocular viewing or telescope oh, viewing. Okay. Not necessarily by eye. It's going to be binocular telescope yeah, object. Yeah, okay. Now, this thing is going to be trucking. This comet is going to move about 7 degrees. That's the span of the full moon once every hour and 42 minutes. Okay. So it's if you have a telescope pointed at it, you would actually be able to see it moving across the star's field. This is actually something you'd be able to see moving in real time if you were able to sit there and just look at it for a minute. It'd be like a spaceship, only a rock. Yes, only a rock. Yeah. Only an uh, icy kind of rock. Right. So not like it's, a spaceship at all, but like a spaceship in that it is moving. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. In that it's moving. Yeah. <laughs> in that sense, yeah. we're yeah. all spaceships in the fact <laughs> that we move. Isn't that true, Heather? And speaking of spaceships, hey, come on in, guys. You're clear for landing. Come on in. Let's go. That's right. We've got a spacecraft update, don't we? That's right. It is a favorite of mine watching this. This is kind of going on over time. This is the ISEE-3 reboot project. This is one of those uh, where it's an old NASA spacecraft um, launched way back when NASA had put it to bed. They went, okay, right. good job, guys. Good night. And then they, like, they took over like an old McDonald's, right? Set up a yep. mission then control. Then they went, oh, wait, it's still awake. Yeah. Then they have a group of people who kickstarted a project and everyone backed them up and said, all right, you have the money. Then they hooked, they uh, took... Mission Control on an old McDonald's, set up shop. <laughs> and so they're actually starting to uh, kind of go through, and they've actually started firing some of its thrusters to spin it back up to uh, optimum spin rate so they can fire its rockets to get it into a better orbit. Um, they're starting to kind of look at some of the old uh, scientific data coming back. So they'd seen that, all, that many, almost all of the instruments were still working, not necessarily functioning normally, mm. they're seeming. Mm. So they're trying to see, kind of get the, the raw data that's actually spitting back out. 
and then going back to the old data that was there, kind of uh, conferring and uh, looking at the old, you know, talking to the old engineers that were on the project and kind of everybody getting together on the, at a table and scratching it out and going, okay, well, what can we make of this? What kind of data is it actually sending back? What can we make sense of this? And so we're able to kind of get back some stuff. Um, it looks like they're using some open source software too, uh, GNU they Radio. Are. Yes, they are actually using open source, which means that they're actually kind of able to go to the community and say, hey, everybody hears this stuff. They have you know access to a number of uh, top people in the community that they can go to and say, hey, help us out with this. That's amazing. So it really, so it really opens them up to some really good resources. Wow. Wow, that's so cool. It's got a little Linux Action Show tie-in right there. <laughs> yes, there is that. I saw that and I was like, open source yeah, all great. the way. Wow, that's a really cool project that they're working on. That is one of the neatest things. I mean, it just feels like something from a movie where you'd have a group of people who get together and make contact with an old spaceship using computer parts that they assembled themselves at their own makeshift mission control. I mean, it's un- it's yeah. almost unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it is really one of those things because the hardware to make to talk to this thing doesn't exist anymore. Right. Because it wasn't worth the the money to keep it running or to keep it together. So and, NASA yeah. oh, tossed wow. it all out. Wow. So they kind of had to cobble things together themselves and then, you know, physical some physical stuff and the rest of it they're able to write software to say pretend you're do you're this piece of equipment. And it can pretend. That's amazing. Amazing. So, you know, they have time on some big uh, dishes and they're talking to it and, you know, trying to get the thrusters and tr- going and trying to get all the the science out of it that they can. But that kind of keeps going. I love it. It's like it's like technology, uh, archaeology almost. Oh, yeah. Huh. And if you guys want to find out more, uh, Heather has more uh, stuff you can read in the show notes. You can also check out, like she said earlier, SciBite 132 and SciBite 133 for additional. De- it's it's kind of mind it's mind blowing. So if you're not up to date on the on the topic, it's it's worth catching up on. Heather, while we're up in space doing the space thing, you want to ho- head over to Mars and maybe do a Curiosity update? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. How is our favorite uh, little rover doing? Over, not so little. How is our favorite nope. rover doing? It's continuing its road trip. We're headed towards the Mount Sharp, layered mountain in the middle of this Gale Crater. Still got some of its uh, drill powder sample material that's going to deliver for some analysis. One thing that is exciting, well, exciting is that it was actually able to observe on June the 3rd, Mercury, was it was transited the sun. So it passed in front of the sun. Now, this was the first transit of the sun by a planet observed from any other planet other than Earth. And it was the first imaging of Mercury at all from Mars. And it was pretty amazing because Mercury only filled about one-sixth of one pixel. <laughs> oh, <laughs> They could just sort of see some darkening. Yeah. Now, they obviously, this wasn't just a random thing. They knew it was going to happen. They knew the timing. So they had it pointed there. And, uh, you you know, they have this specific camera made to look at the stuff because Mm. they have Mm -hmm. 
they're analyzing the atmosphere. They want to analyze some of that's going on to see for, you know, clouds, for the clearness, for dust. Mm -hmm. So they're able to look at things like this and say, they knew this was coming. They're like, hey, this is a great opportunity. Let's look and watch for this. Mm -hmm. So then they can go back and through and say, hey, tiny dimming, tiny dimming. That's it. Yes. That's it. Well, they know exactly where it's going to be. So Yeah, they know pretty much where it's going to be, pretty much the timing where it's going to be, but yeah. they were actually able to see it. Yeah. Now, you can actually see Mercury and Venus transits more often from Mars than Earth. Huh. Really? Just because of the... Uh, atmosphere? No, just because of the orbital orbit. Oh, okay. It has nothing to do with the uh, atmosphere. It's just the orbit okay. uh, geometry. Huh. So it's a good spot to get a nice picture, turns yep. out. and it's... It's kind of funny because you see the images, and there's two black spots on there. No, that's yeah. not yeah. Mercury. Those right. are sunspots. Sunspots, yeah. Which are way bigger than they, Mercury. They're very sl yeah. <laughs> they're slow moving, but yes, you kind of see those, and you're like, oh wow, Mercury. Nope. No. Those are sunspots. Those they're are huge. Teeny <laughs> tiny little one sixth of one pixel, slightly darkening pixels. That's Mercury. Mm. Now we have some. As far as Mars stuff goes, we have some testing of some new landing equipment. Oh. The low-density supersonic decelerator. It's this really ambitious uh, kind flying of laying saucer. the groundwork. It does kind of look like a flying saucer. Doesn't it look so like a flying saucer? It does to me. Well, all of the landing landings you see, you know, it's those, uh, you know, it has the shell that kind of goes in and it has, this specific idea is how to slow that down enough. Okay. So first, they have an idea to sort of inflate a little uh, kind of a balloon or airbag around the outside of it because then it makes it a little bit bigger, a little bit uh, larger surface area. means it slows it down just sure. a little bit. more resistance and whatnot. You know, then you can stick out some supersonic uh, parachutes. And it's a whole system that they're kind of going through and testing so far, their scheduled times and weather have not come together. Um, they've tried multiple times. They're still kind of trying to get everything to going together, but it's some pretty cool stuff that they're hoping to use in the future. Yeah. This is kind of for really large-scale things, for you know even bigger rovers or human-scale, you know, for, you know, if you're going to have... Uh, human scientific expeditions to come. These are the kind of mm. large-scale uh, sy reentry systems that you would need. Mm -hmm. So they're starting to work on that as well. So That's pretty neat. And you know me, I'm a sucker for anything that's kind of getting science closer to actual sci-fi. It's like my science and my sci-fi come together, and it's like chocolate and peanut butter, Heather. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, speaking of coming together, why don't we step in the time machine? We got to go back okay. in time. I'm, I don't, I don't want to alarm you, Heather, but uh, uh -huh. oh, here we go. You push the button, then. <laughs> you don't alarm oh. me. I don't want to scare you, but I fueled the time machine with bubble gum on accident. Oh. Bubble gum. Oh, actually, we made it. Oh, it's because they only had to take us 17 years back. Woo! Next week, I promise, I will not put bubble, gu bubble gum in the gas tank. Uh, uh -huh. So the time machine this week takes us to June 25th, 1997. Like I said, 17 years ago. Heather, what happened this week in science? The space station Mir had a small accident. Mm. Suffered, well, small. It suffered a near-fatal mishap when the Progress Ferry was being docked via remote control. Uh, via a uh, cosmonaut, it was accidentally rammed into the science module, put a hole in the pressure vessel, damaged some solar arrays, oh. 
useless thereafter. Uh. They're able to salvage the station um, by pretty much severing the electrical and data connections to that part of the station, sealed off that module, right. lost part of the station, lost about half their electrical power, but they were able to actually save what was left of the station and, Absolutely. you know, be alive, well, and I which think, was what they were kind of going for. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate goal. Plus, yes. you know, when you zoom out and kind of look down the road, hindsight being 2020, it inspired that realistic and incredible scene in Armageddon, the uh, Bruce Willis thriller where he saves the Earth from an asteroid. Can you feel, can you feel the science crying? Is that your protection? <laughs> so, chat room and listeners, he does this because I don't appreciate that film. Oh, and I occasionally, mean, occasionally he brings it up. I mean, I mean randomly. I don't particularly appreciate it. Let's leave it at that. Uh, well, on hey, a positive note, yeah. on a positive note in history, one Martian year ago, Curiosity landed. Oh, wow. Now, Martian year is about 686 Earth, oh. year, Earth days. Okay. But... It's the one Martian year birthday for Curiosity. Well, happy birthday, Curiosity, Martian style. That's great. Yes. All right, well, let me recalibrate the side by 2000, so that way we can look up into the sky this week. All right. As far as the planets go, Mercury is starting to get hidden by the sunrise, so we're not going to be able to see him really much anymore. Venus in the dawn is low in the east. Mars is hanging around at twilight, high in the southwest. We've got the blue-white giant star Spica off to its left. Those are always a nice pair. Blue-white uh, Spica yeah. and Mars, nice red and orange pair. Yeah. They're going to be setting in the west about 1 a.m. daylight savings. Jupiter at twilight is low in the west and northwest horizon. It's going to be setting by nightfall. And we've got Saturn over in the evening over in the southern skies. Not a bad sky at all. Not bad. And guess what? It's all outlined in the show notes. If you see something in the sky and you're like, I bet that's something I should know. Like, how, you know, when I look, I wish somebody did this for mountains because I'll be driving around and be like, I should probably know that mountain name. But now when I look up in the sky, I will have a resource. I'll go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. I'll click on Sidebite 134. I'll scroll down through the chronologically listed show notes that have extra links and multimedia to everything talked about today. And at the bottom of those show notes, I will find the up in the sky segment to answer my questions. And Heather, I think that does bring us to the end of this week's episode, doesn't it? Is there anything else? So. All right, Not very that I good. Can think of. Well, I will leave people with maybe like a pro tip. Like if I was a Cybite listener and I wanted to know the inside trick, here's what something I would I would impart upon you. You can tweet right at Heather. She's JB underscore Mars underscore base on Twitter, or you can send us your feedback over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click the contact link. But if you really want to be a Cybite pro, join us live. We do this show on Tuesdays, jblive.tv. And we'd love to have you show up in our chat room and hang out with us. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of SciBite. And we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>